0: This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. So we're
1: doing Brexit, Supreme Court, and then... Um,
2: Why prime age banner are falling out of the workforce. paper. Prime age
0: men, yes. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Glacius. With me as usual, my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Hello. Hi. How are you guys doing? I'm pretty good. Great. Sarah, do you feel deeply ashamed that you were wrong about the Brexit vote?
2: Somebody was wrong on a podcast and it was me. Um, yes, if you are a regular Weeds listener, you will remember that I had predicted Brexit would not happen. It has happened and we're going to talk about it. And we also have some other exciting topics. We're going to talk about... The Supreme Court's recent big decision on abortion, the biggest one in decades. It's a very big decision. It's a very big decision, but um, as I will later argue, not one that, you know, suggests the pro-choice movement is winning the overall battle for abortion rights. And then we are going to get to an, as always, exciting um, research paper.
0: About prime-age male labor force participation.
2: How could you not stick around for that? Say prime-age
0: male labor force participation (laughs)
1: again for me. I won't. I refuse.
2: All right. (laughs) We'll start with Brexit.
0: Yeah. So, Ezra... What What is Brexit?
1: Does anybody truly know what Brexit is? So as you may have heard, Britain has voted to leave the European Union. Before we get into the mechanics of how it works, I do want to spend a moment talking about the predictive ecosystem around it. Because as Sarah mentioned, uh, a couple of weeks ago in the weeds, we were disastrously wrong. And I say we and I wasn't here for that episode. So I specifically don't mean me. Um, but if I had been here, I also would have been wrong. And it, what I think is interesting about it is that this is the second time this year where if everybody had just watched the polls, they would have been much closer to being right. So for, with Donald Trump for months, what political journalism mainly consisted of was people explaining why the guy leading the polls in the Republican Party race was definitely not going to win. And for months, he was way down in the betting markets, and but he just had this sticky poll lead, and we just kept explaining, nope, it can't happen. The party decides. Nate Silver wrote this piece, Dear Media Stopping Attention to Donald Trump's Polls or whatever it was. And then Donald Trump, of course, won the nomination easily. And similarly, Brexit was polling even uh, with Remain uh, for quite a while now. I mean this had been clear, and yet if you looked at the betting markets the day of the vote – Brexit was given something like a 20% chance of happening. So there's something first happening that I just want to note, which is that our idea of what is possible in politics right now is off. Um, the sort of We're all good Bayesian um, theorists, and we all sort of come in with our, our our conception of what is within the realm of possibility, and that conception is proving wrong, and quantitative survey data is proving a much better guide to reality. That is definitely a lesson I'm taking away here. So Brexit is the, you, the Britain voting to leave the European Union. They are voting to leave the European Union for reasons that are a little opaque because getting that kind of really fine-grained survey data is difficult. But basically people give two explanations for what is going on. The first explanation and the one that I think is correct is that it is about immigration. Immigration to Britain has dramatically risen in the age of the European Union. That's for to a large extent what the European Union does. It makes it very easy for people from one member state to go move, live, and settle in another member state. The consequence is that the uh, amount of foreign-born residents of Britain has risen to has risen to a very very high level. It's gone up by multiples. Um, I should have brought the number with me, but I didn't. Uh, the other argument that people make is that it's about economic anxiety, mistrust of elites, a sort of post-recession anger at the technocrats who have let people down so deeply. I – this gets talked about a lot. It is a very popular explanation. I don't think the data really backs it up if you look at where Brexit won and, and just broadly if you look at um, what people said about it. I think there's a, a tendency in American politics to want to make – every give everything an economic explanation because then you can immediately segue into saying – and that's why the things I have always believed that would be good for the economy should be done right now. But in this case, I think in Brexit, a little bit like in America with Trump – There is a real backlash against immigration, against demographic change, uh, against just a feeling that people are losing uh, their grip of their country. Um, And that proved to be a very powerful sentiment. What happens now are a couple of things. Um, Number one. The absolute consensus of virtually – like almost every economist I've seen write on this is that this is going to be bad. It is going to be bad because it is going to be uncertain and unclear what happens next. There's a very complex process that relates to invoking something called Article 50 so that they can negotiate terms of withdrawal with the European Union. The European Union – is probably not going to give them very good terms of withdrawal. Um, so they're going to be trying to negotiate what amounts to a bilateral uh, pact with the European Union. And the European Union is going to want to punish them because they're not going to want to see other countries follow Britain's lead and, and leave. Uh, at the same time, you Britain is going to lose its ability to sell in a lot of places at the favorable rates it currently has. There's going to be a lot of investment decisions where people who have – Companies that serve all of Europe but are headquartered in London are going to think about moving those companies or making – or not expanding them or not buying new machinery for them or whatever it might be, not hiring for them. So the consensus seems to be that Britain is in for a bit of a rough economic ride in the near term and without very much evident reason to believe, there will be an upside to this pain in the long term. The other really uh, significant thing here is that – the United Kingdom itself may begin to break up. Um, Scotland is very upset about this vote. They want to stay in the European Union and so they are looking to do another vote on independence from Britain. Northern Ireland is also starting to talk about independence from Britain. So uh, Cameron, who was a prime minister for this and held this vote completely unnecessarily. He just did it as a political play even though he did not um, personally favor exiting the European Union and he's now going to go down in history as a truly terrible prime minister. Uh, he is is potentially going to have presided over the breakup, not of the European Union, or not just over the European Union, but also of Great Britain.
0: Yes, that it <laughs> seems bad. No, and I, I think <clears throat> to me, an underplayed subplot here is the, Ooh, I like underplayed um, subplots. the sort of Calvin Ball nature of constitutional government in the United Kingdom, right, which they have this very strong tradition of parliamentary sovereignty, which has meant no written constitution, um, enormous centralization of power in the the parliament, uh, in, in the prime minister's office. And in, in the past couple decades, there's been some backing away from that in terms of the creation of a Scottish parliament, the creation of a somewhat less powerful Welsh parliament, the creation of this um, slightly goofy um, Northern Ireland power sharing deal, the shifting of some power to Brussels as, as part of the European Union. But still on paper, all of the power rests in parliament. There's no – in the United States, in most countries, there's a written constitution that entrenches these structures features of government and there's some kind of court that enforces them. And in England, there, there isn't. So the prime minister can do something like wake up one morning and decide it would help him resolve a conflict inside his own party to hold a referendum and then he can say verbally that he personally will treat the outcome of the referendum as binding but not write the referendum so as to be actually, actually legally binding. And you might look at that from afar and say, well, that's a strange way to do it. Like, why are you doing it that way, David? Like, maybe you should either make it legally binding or say it's not binding or something. But no one can – like, no one can stop him, right? Like, the, the train just kind of moves forward in, in that regard. Um, and so then they have the referendum and now it's like, again – Literally nothing happens. He could file for Article 50, but he says he won't. Um, He says he's going to resign in the fall, but he could just not resign or he could resign right away. (laughs) It's completely, completely discretionary. There's no rule-governed process to it, which itself, I, I don't think that speaks to the like long-term economic consequences of this, but it plays very heavily into the short-term nature of, of the situation where no one really knows what's happening and they're all kind of making it up. And by, and by the same token, there was a leave campaign, right, that was organized to win the referendum, but there isn't like a leave ministry, that's going to come in. And the different people who wanted to leave don't necessarily agree on a program. Um, and they're split across political parties. There, there is a small UK independence party that's been running as a kind of spoiler against the Tories on the far right. The the sort of most prominent Leave people were members of David Cameron's party who were out of power and the thought is that probably Boris Johnson, the the former mayor of London who was one of those conservative party uh, Leavers, is probably going to take over the conservative party and therefore become prime minister as a result. But his own ideas may not be reflective of the, the sort of the hardcore Leave ideas. It's going to take a long time to like actually see what the practical upshot of this is. Like, so one possible endgame scenario here is that Britain gets a sort of a moderate Leave government, and they wind up joining uh, what's called the European Economic Area, which is a basically an arrangement that Norway and Iceland have with the EU, and. What happens with Norway is that about 75% of EU law applies inside Norway. Um, In exchange, Norway gets the unfettered access to the single market, uh, but also they have free movement of labor of EU citizens into Norway. So in effect, Norway, it's Very, 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 very similar to Norway being an EU member. The two main differences are that um, EU fisheries policy does not apply to Norway, which is important to Norway because there's like eight people there and four of them are fishermen. (laughs) And the other is that Norway doesn't get like an actual vote in EU decision making. They just have to go along for the ride, which is not a big deal in practice for Norway because it's such a small country that even if they did get a vote, no one would really care what they think and they they get overrun. Um, well, doesn't EU have uh, consensus voting? They do. Measures? So
1: they Norway do. could – I mean not that Norway wants to hold a bunch of stuff up. They're pretty go-along to get along. But,
0: yeah, but I it's mean, actually they, a structure where having a vote really matters. Well, it's a weird thing because in theory there's a unanimity rule. In practice, like the small countries don't hold out. On right. their own, the, they, the norms are you don't do that. Yeah, they get with the norm, and it's a little weird. It's like the big countries maybe can, or it's it's a it's a fuzzy system. And anyway, so for, for Norway, it's not a big deal. This is basically a solution for some eccentric Norwegian fishing problem that I don't understand the dimensions of.
2: Um, for, Next for, week on the weeds, <laughs> esoteric Norwegian fishing <laughs> problems.
0: For the UK to park itself this way, which Johnson has at times suggested is what he wants to do, I think would feel to a lot of levers like a bait and switch. You know what I mean? He'd come down and be like, hey, we got rid of like 20 percent of EU regulations. Um, But all the Polish guys who, you know, can show up and take your job like would still be here. And in practice, like big deal, European regulations would still apply. But in exchange, there would be no devastation to the the British economy, right? I mean, the, the British economy depends in a crucial way on access to the European market. It does not depend in a crucial way on British ministers being invited to summit meetings in Brussels. You know, so we could... I could imagine us looking back on this five years from now and saying, "Like this was a hullabaloo that was like kind of about nothing, in which a certain number of uh, strongly anti-immigrant, uh, aging, uh, working-class British people were sort of played but for suckers by Boris Johnson as a power play to become prime minister personally." Um, but those people are old; like they'll they'll fade. The, the the whole thing could just like go away. But it could also tilt into like catastrophe because what the levers are saying is that they're going to somehow regain control of immigration policy uh, but not have to give up the right of uk-based banks to sell financial services everywhere and you know just this morning you had like a really 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 clear statement from the president of France that like that's a no-go as far as he's concerned. Uh, You've had uh, the president of the European Commission saying that, you know, the free movement of people is integral to the single market. It really is like a core principle of of the European Union. So if the next British government chooses to really make it stand and being able to limit uh, migration of EU citizens into the British labor market, you know, which they might. I mean, it seems like that's what the British people want. Uh, them to do. And there's going to be a real economic cost to that. Um, It is insulting to Eastern European countries to say that our political system is going to be overturned because we really, really, really want to kick Polish workers out of our country. And it is uh, very advantageous to Paris, Amsterdam, Frankfurt to say that the British banks are going to have to pay a price for this. Can can we stop there for one second? Because I think that's a super important point.
1: Yeah. London has not a hammerlock but a lot of control over the European banking sector. Um, A lot of the biggest, richest banks are in London and one reason that they are so big and rich is they sell to all of Europe. That is where you go to do financial services, not just for Britain but for Europe. If that stops being true, all of a sudden there's some chance that Paris could take that business or Germany could take that business. And so those countries actually have an incentive – to not let the U.K. back in. Like the U.K. gave up this – from one perspective, the U.K. is giving up this huge advantage they have in this industry and to just give it back to them would be weird. Like you can get these jobs and this money for your people and now you can be like if you want to do – banking business in the European Union, you have to do it from Paris. And like, that would be super good for France.
2: Although a lot of this rests with the UK now, because we still have this Article 50 thing, which I think a lot of us know much more about than we ever had imagined, where the UK actually has to go forward and formally go to the European Union. I think like, you know, Matt was saying, one of the weird things of this is nothing is binding about this vote that happened. And we've seen other votes backtracked on, like the Greek vote to um, reject the bailout package was kind of pushed aside as, you know, the government decided we want to work out some kind of terms to save our economy. And I am very interested and curious about does it actually get invoked or not? Because, you know, as you said, there's not really a plan. It doesn't seem like there's economists thinking about like, well, how do we best exit the European Union? And they're starting to think through, you know, their role as, like, a major banking center, you know, how they could function outside of the EU. Um, And with such a divided vote, I am very curious to see, like, how this actually plays out in the logistics of it, where you have nothing written down, binding, saying, okay, now you follow steps X, Y, and Z to leave the European Union. I I know there's a lot of calls for a second referendum. It seems implausible to me that it would happen. But it also seems like in, you know, our colleague Dylan Matthews has been writing about this that there is a decent amount of wiggle room. I have no idea how to ballpark, you know, how big <laughs> that wiggle room is. I clearly did not think this was going to go the way it did, but it seems like there's, you know, just looking at this week we've had since the vote happened with very little actual movement towards, you know, making the departure. And seeing what it would mean for UK unification. Or you have Scotland talking about another referendum that they would want to leave and join the EU as an independent country. I don't know. I just see like the space to kind of – everyone's the dumb um, word for braxies or whatever. um,
1: Braxies. It's the best.
2: It's the worst. Uh, (laughs) But I see the space for that. It seems as you have inaction each day more seems to leave more space for that to be an actual thing.
0: If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel OK about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzily things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to Try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans fifty percent off your first order. If you go to naturebox.com/weeds, so you go to naturebox.com/weeds. Uh, that way we get credit, you get fifty percent off your first order. naturebox.com/weeds.
1: I think that you have to th- ask yourself about who is in control, when, and why. So this is one way in which I thought David Cameron's immediate decision to announce his resignation was peculiar, recognizing that there was certainly pressure on him from a party that is totally furious at what he's done because this was a complete own goal. There was no need to have this vote. But he could have said, all right, I don't agree with his decision, but I think the principles of democracy are important. So like, let's begin to game this out. And by having a prime minister in who did not want to leave – there's a lot of discussion that many uh, leave voters regret the decision, and many remain voters who did not turn out to vote regret the decision. And regret sick. Regret.
2: Another one of our terrible words we have now.
1: <laughs> and uh, you know something that you could imagine if Cameron were sticking around is creating a pretext for a secondary vote that before doing something like Article 50, creating some kind of um, referendum on broad terms may maybe look kind of bad to people. And you know, then, you, then you take that to a vote and, and basically try to get the whole thing overturned. But what is happening now, I think, is very strange. And, and Matt, you understand British politics a lot better than I do. So maybe you can explain it to me. David Cameron is being forced to resign as head of the party because he held this vote on exit which didn't need to be held and most people, most of the MPs in the party did not want to see held and people are very upset about exit. Now he is likely to be replaced by the head of the Brexit group. Why is Boris Johnson the likely successor? Why would people vote for him if within the party they don't like this? And the reason I ask is that If it's not Boris Johnson coming next, like if it is Boris Johnson coming next, well, he actually does need to do Brexit because like he built his entire political, his national political profile here on being the champion of this. I don't think he can just, you know, toss that overboard. If it were someone else, he could try to save the – Greater Britain.
0: Right. Well, so the issue is that the EU has become unpopular with rank and file Tory party members. So so the EU played a role in the Tory party sort of similar to uh, immigration reform in like The the mid-aughts when, you know, George W. Bush was for immigration reform. Uh, his, His successor as nominee, John McCain, was for immigration reform. Ronald Reagan had been for immigration reform. But over time, it had become increasingly unpopular with conservative talk radio hosts, grassroots activists, backbench House of Representatives members. But a lot of the business community and the donor class, along with the very tippy top of Republican Party leadership, still wanted some form of like a a path to citizenship for for the undocumented. And EU membership has a sort of similar role to that in – conservative politics where Cameron was for continued EU membership, the sort of financial and business elite of Britain were for continued EU membership, but rank and file Tory voters back home were against it. So Cameron promised this referendum to prevent Tory voters from defecting to the UK Independence Party. He said, you know, you may disagree with me about this issue, but putting me in office is going to, you know, give you your shot. Right, And Cameron was counting on winning the referendum with the support of labor voters and Scottish people who he doesn't have inside his party. Um, but so what we're going to have when Cameron steps down is basically a conservative party primary.
1: But then why is Cameron stepping down? That, that is a piece of this I don't understand. Why not just take credit for it? If it's popular in his party, why not say, look, I did it, um, it's not my position, but this is what you want. I believe in the Democratic. Like, why does not? I mean, I think that's the part I'm. I'm right. I mean,
0: I mean, I think I think he he just he staked too much credibility on this. Right. He really led the Remain campaign personally uh, because he he was the only one around to do it, and he put a lot of his personal prestige behind it. Party activists want to go. Um, he could have tried to hold on. You know. I mean, and I think in a lot of ways it would be better. I think one thing you've seen a a lot of in here is people responding to perceived needs to give way to things and do things that they have not been actually, actually forced to do. I think it would be interesting to see Cameron say, look, Boris has the right to challenge me for party leadership. There's some mechanism by which that can happen. And like, if he beats me, he beats me, but I'm not going to just fade away for no reason. Like, I think I should run this, uh, but he hasn't done that. Instead, they're trying to create a, a sort of a, a stalking horse anti-Johnson candidate who's likely to be uh, Theresa May, who has been, I think, the the home affairs minister in Cameron's government. She sort of was nominally on the Remain side, uh, but not particularly vocal about it. And I think is known in British politics for like saying a lot of nasty things about immigrants and, and the need to get tough. So I think there's a there's a thought that she may be able to like thread the needle in a, in a kind of useful yeah, I way. I
2: do see this from Cameron's view, like, how do you go from leading Remain to then, like, negotiating UK's exit from the EU? I have another politics question for Matt, though, and has extensive knowledge of the British system. What the hell is going on in the Labour Party? And, like, why is there such a severe meltdown? And so what I know, and, you know, you can expand on this, is that there's been this vote again. There's been a vote of no confidence in their leader, Jeremy Corbyn, who's basically said – eh, I was constitutionally elected, this vote, you know, whatever, we're just going to set it aside. Why do you see the labor movement melting down right now? And like, how does this play out where you have like three quarters of the labor MPs saying they don't support Corbyn, but then Corbyn saying, you know, I'm sticking around and doing this thing. Right. And
1: before you answer that, I just like want to draw out something that happened in what the two of you just said. So we have David Cameron, who nobody is telling to resign, resigning, And we have Jeremy Corbyn who just got a vote of no confidence from the ministers he technically leads saying he won't resign. Like that's like the crazy thing about the situation right now. Right. So – I don't understand why anybody's doing anything they're
0: doing. <laughs> right, and so you know I, I, this is is a little thorny. Uh, but basically, what what happened was was that Ed Miliband, who had led the Labour Party until a couple of years ago, he um, led them into a 2015 election where there was a heavy expectation in the British pundit class, that labor was well-positioned and they were going to win. I don't want to like delve too deeply into like why they thought this was a favorable environment for labor because it it seems just mistaken to me. Um, But labor lost, which I would say is what you should expect. There was an incumbent government. The economy was growing. And so, of course, they got reelected.
1: But But it seemed very similar to how Republicans experienced 2012. Yes. That— they thought this should have been easy and then it wasn't. And like the model showed it wouldn't be. But right. like they, they thought they just like totally fucked up, did an autopsy, you
0: know. Right. And so then, so then labor people freaked out and there was a perception in the labor establishment that Miliband had put the party to the left. Um, and had abandoned uh, a lot of like new labor-y kind of ideas. And there was a perception on the left that this was completely untrue and that Miliband had um, given in to Cameron's austerity politics and represented continuity with this corrupt Blairite establishment that had first destroyed the economy through financialization and the financial crisis and then turned things over to Cameron and not seriously challenged him. Also huge lingering bitterness about the Iraq war within labor activist circles. So Miliband, before stepping down, Changed the party nomination rules, which used to be, I don't know how they used to be, but it used to be relatively closed off. And he made it much more open, much more like an American open primary, where it's like you show up and you say, "Okay, I want want this guy. Um, And so they thought this was a good idea because a lot of people in Europe felt that the lesson of the 2008 Democratic primary, um, I mean, very specifically, they drew this lesson, was that the 2008 Democratic primary was really good for Democrats, that it got lots of people involved it was this great party building exercise. So they wanted to open up nomination processes. And then some labor MPs... Just to draw this out, because the
1: the idea there being that under the way labor worked uh, previously, someone like Barack Obama would never have been able to beat Hillary Clinton. But people in the UK really
0: like Barack Obama. Exactly. Something like that. Um, So they wanted more popular participation. Um, So then there was a group of like far left, fairly marginalized uh, labor MPs and they decided they were going to put forward this guy, Jeremy Corbyn, who had been in parliament since 1983 and was a – I think you can think of him as a Bernie Sanders-like figure in the sense that like he was a veteran politician, not an outsider, but was a total, total outsider. Um, The actual – Issue positions he stands for are way to the left of Sanders's, but he's like a similar kind of person, right? Like he's he's been there in parliament forever but kind of like is known for his like lonely dissents and his like fighting with party leadership more than for rising the ranks or, or anything like that. Um, so they were going to put him forward but they needed more MPs to nominate him than they actually sort of had on the merits. And a certain number of labor MPs, I guess, just feeling it would be cute, decided to like go along and nominate him even though they didn't think he should be on the ballot. And I was just going to decide. I think the big lesson of the UK's meltdown over the previous two or three years is that if you're a politician and you have an option as to whether to do something or not to do it, only do it if you actually want it to happen, <laughs> right? Don't nominate people who you don't think should be leader just, just for fun. Um, but that's what they did. They thought – as labor insiders wanted to move the party back to the right. There was this sort of sentiment that like putting this like super left joke candidate up there would be like, well, we had the debate and now we have a mandate to, you know, return to our, to our new labor roots. And it massively backfired. It turned out – That the open UK primary process had what I think are exactly the flaws of open primaries in the United States, which is that very few people vote in them, you know, one way or the other. Like most people just don't care. But by making it technically open to all comers, you can sort of like catch fire – you know, like randomly, and a bunch of people who had no like history of involvement in labor politics, particularly young people who felt that like the system is corrupt and felt inspired by this very kind of like humble guy who like doesn't wear fancy suits, has been plugging away, um, doesn't have a lot of friends in the press. Uh, you know, wasn't involved in Iraq or the banks or the bailouts or anything like that. They like they really liked Corbyn, so there was this surge of support for Corbin that on. The on the one hand totally drowned out anyone else, like he, he kicked their butts, he got 59% of the vote in a four-way field, um, but it was also a very small number of people like relative to the actual population of the UK or even the Labor Party's general voting base. And so that set up this drama like all year where Corbyn and his allies feel very strongly that they have a democratic mandate from the people to lead the Labor Party and the Labor MPs feel very strongly that this guy is super unpopular, that they as a collective actually have way more democratic legitimacy. They've like run and won in general elections that lots of people vote in. And since what the Labor Party leader does is like literally leads a group of members of parliament to try to win a parliamentary majority and get himself voted in as leader, the sort of logic of the situation is that the MPs should have a big say in who leads them, but the rules don't say that. So now they're trying to pull off a coup where they're basically saying um, they're now—because they feel Corbyn is unelectable, they're creating a situation where he's definitely unelectable, right? I mean, you can't run and win an election without the support of the people who would presumably be your ministers. Like, it doesn't make any sense. just to be clear,
2: there's no confidence vote. There's nothing in writing that says, like, if there's a no confidence vote, you elect a new leader. Like, he is within his, like, means to ignore this?
0: There's a procedure for it, which it doesn't involve a no confidence vote. It's like, I think you have to get 50 MPs to say, we want to trigger a challenge and here's going to be our guy. Labor MPs... Much like the Leave referendum, people do not have like a clear plan. Their idea seemed to be: if we get the whole shadow cabinet to resign, if can, we hold this vote, can I yeah. interject
1: one thing? Because I think we just skipped over something no. in the story. Labour is pro Remain, and Jeremy Corbyn is believed to be sort of privately pro Brexit, or maybe just very like sort of ambivalent about it. But a lot of the reason the the no confidence vote happened now is that a lot of folks in Labour. Felt that Corbyn sabotaged the Remain campaign by not coming out strongly enough for it, by not campaigning for it strongly. Like also with some
2: leaked emails suggesting some leaked emails showing that
1: he was like watering down like pro Remain speeches. So Remain became a flashpoint in
0: the sort of intra labor fight. Well, right. There's two aspects to it. One is that there's there's a sentiment that he should have done more for Remain. So for example, he refused to do a joint event with David Cameron. Um, The other is that people think that because the conservatives are in turmoil, there may be an early election. So the sort of old labor plan was to like be concerned that Corbyn was maybe unelectable, but also not too concerned because there was no election scheduled until 2020. So, you know, maybe something will come up or, you know, who knows. Um, But now they think there might be an election this winter. And they think that they're from a sort of moderate labor perspective, you have the conservative party. Threatening maybe to like be taken over by a populist wave and destroy the British banking industry. This is a little like the questions around Hillary Clinton's campaign against Donald Trump is like labor could try to get the embrace of big business. Um, But it's hard to do that when your leader is an unreconstructed socialist who's calling for the nationalization of of several industries. Um, Conversely, from the standpoint of a a left-wing activist, Corbyn is like the guy you can trust to not take advantage of the situation, to completely jettison Labor's traditional ideological commitments and reposition it as the party of high finance. So it it just raises tensions on both sides uh, around that kind of thing. It seems like the anti-Corbyn faction in parliament assumed that if they could get a huge swath of Labor MPs to denounce the leader of their party, that he would be, quote unquote, forced by some nefarious forces to resign and their problem would be solved. But he's saying, he is the one guy who's like, the rules don't say I have to resign. Right. So I'm not going to resign. They could call a new primary. They, they, there's the ability to do that. They could find a candidate to challenge him one-on-one. That candidate could conceivably beat him. Uh, that may well be what happens. But at least as of Wednesday morning when we're recording, they like they don't even have a candidate, right? So it's like, this guy's got to go.
1: And they don't know that they'll beat him even if they do, right? It could be that you hold this election. The same thing happens again where Corbyn has a very activated core of labor supporters who like come out to vote in this primary, effectively what is this primary, and then you've just proven that Jeremy Cor- it wasn't a fluke. Jeremy Corbyn really does lead your
0: party. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, it, it's a, it's a huge risk of completely backfiring without – I mean, just you would expect it to be like, OK, we're going to do this. We're going to pressure him to resign. And then when he doesn't resign the following morning, here's our candidate. Here's our campaign. Here's our slogan. Yep. Like we've been working on this. But like they don't have anything. There's like no plan B. So you have – Leave has won a referendum and it does not have a policy agenda. And you have uh, the Labour Party is revolted against its leader, but it doesn't have an alternate platform either. The only people operating with like a coherent agenda here are the Scottish separatists who are saying very, very clearly that there should be a new referendum. If there isn't a new referendum, they're going to have a Scottish independence referendum. Like they have absolute unity and they are in fact pressing the case right now that labor should lose its status as the official opposition party in Westminster, that they do not have a shadow cabinet and they can't fill the obligations of an opposition party and they should be considered the official opposition, get the uh, better chairs and offices, (laughs) you know, everything that comes with that. But obviously a Scottish separatist party cannot Be the alternative government because you know they don't run candidates in the majority of the country. So it's a it's a problematic situation.
2: Should we should we come back to the U.S. for some exciting news? Let's
1: come back to some um, decisions made by unelectable people in robes.
2: (laughs) So we had our last day of Supreme Court decisions this past Monday, and it um, featured one of the biggest abortion decisions in decades. And the Supreme Court essentially overturned two really restrictive Texas abortion laws. Um, one of those laws required all abortion clinics in Texas to be certified as ambulatory surgical centers, which meant that their hallways had to be a certain width, even like their janitor's closets had to be a certain size. These are usually regulations used for um, places that have a lot of surgery, despite the fact abortion is a non-surgical procedure. And then there's a second regulation that required all abortion providers to have admitting privileges that their local hospital. So it was very easy if a local hospital said, no, you can't admit patients here, you would essentially shut down the local abortion clinic. The abortion rights advocates argued in these cases that they were unnecessarily burdensome, they weren't improving women's health, and they were forcing abortion clinics to close. And there definitely were a lot of closures, about 20 of Texas's 40 clinics closed since these um, regulations passed in 2013. And the Supreme Court sided with them. What, what
1: did the pro-life advocate say? The, oh, so the, pro- pro- life advocates the pro-life
2: advocate said, this: you know, we're, we're protecting women's health. We're doing things to make these abortion clinics safer. We're not restricting access. People can go somewhere else that we are putting in place these regulations to make abortion safer. And the Supreme Court rejected that argument. You know, one of the things that I found... Very striking about this case, as opposed to other abortion cases I've read, is it was incredibly facts-based, where they really grappled with what had changed about abortion access in Texas. They were very interested in how far women had to travel and how many clinics had closed in a way that it, it was, it felt less—a lot of the abortion decisions, really starting with Roe v.ersus Wade, are very philosophical about a woman's right to choose and a right to privacy— This one was very much like show us your evidence for your case, like show us that this is improving women's health, show us that this is, you know, restricting access to abortion. And they found little evidence it was improving women's health. And, you know, we do already know abortion is a very safe procedure. There's some stats showing it's safer than having a colonoscopy and it's definitely safer than childbirth. And there really was a lot of evidence showing that this was restricting women's access to abortion, given all the clinics that were closing, increased distances, women were traveling. So that was one of the things that was really striking to me. So you have these two laws knocked down, and there's dozens of other states that have similar laws. So we're probably—and already seeing the beginning of a ripple effect of those other states losing these laws. So so there's this ripple effect nationally. And it was really a different kind of abortion ruling where it was just so— Rooted in evidence. And it suggests possibly a new way that the Supreme Court might think about abortion laws, not just about kind of the theory of what counts as obstructing access, what type of laws are, you know, the standard is an undue burden. In this case, they really, you know, got into the evidence of like what has actually changed, and we're going to use that to decide if something is an undue burden on women. So that was really interesting and different and kind of important and where the Supreme Court is going in regulating abortion.
1: So – and what was interesting here just about the breakdown of the vote was, as I understand it, the initial expectation pre-Scalia's death was that you would see a 5-4 majority upholding this. Then I think the expectation was after Scalia's death, you would see a 4-4 tie, which would – would that have meant it was upheld roughly?
2: It would have – it would have meant Texas as well. yeah, it stayed state in it place. Yeah, state in place, yeah. Yeah.
1: And then what you actually got was a 5-3 decision against it. With Kennedy joining the liberals on the court. And that was a big deal because it also created this possibility where you could look forward into the court and say like, okay, like if Hillary Clinton wins the next election and you get like a 5-4 majority on the court um, of liberals, maybe Kennedy is not – maybe Kennedy is more open on some of these arguments than people thought.
2: Yeah, I mean it's hard. To read um you know that Kennedy has kind of gone different ways on different abortion rulings, so it's and it's so infrequent it's hard to see like a trend like always shifting one direction. you have so such a few sample size to work with, so walk through I see like a positive and a negative for the pro choice movement in this, and we can talk about those however much we want. I think you know the idea of the Supreme Court requesting these facts and like requesting to understand how these laws affect women on the ground they'll generally be good for abortion rights advocates because they can generally show like look women's access to abortion is being obstructed if they can show that's happening in a major way they have like a decent chance of winning these cases you know the reason i think it's it might not be as powerful for the pro choice movement and you know i wrote about this for vox this week is that you know the pro life movement can kind of like shoot first and ask questions later they can like pass all these abortion restrictions and have them proliferate throughout the country years before courts actually, you know, step in and say, no, that's not constitutional. So if you think of this Texas law, it was passed in 2013. It's been in effect for three years. Half of Texas's abortion clinics have closed. It's going to be very hard for them to reopen. Texas has already said it's looking for like new ways to kind of limit, you know, it has to recertify all these abortion clinics as they open. Um, 23 other states passed similar laws in this, you know, time between Texas's law and the Supreme Court decision. And now all of those have to be individually challenged. So the Texas law was overturned, but there's so much of the Texas law, like, still in the United States, and there's so many other ways, you know, the way that um, the Supreme Court's relationship with the pro-life movement has typically worked is that the Supreme Court says, you can't do this, you can't do this, um, and, and, you know, when they hear you can't do this type of restriction, they just start testing out a different type of restriction. So it's—I I still see it as, like, a very much uphill battle for the pro-choice movement and, you know, the way we have this, like, state-level— Regulation of abortion with the Supreme Court weighing in a few years later definitely gives – The pro-life movement, a lot of space to restrict abortion access before the pro-choice movement can even respond.
0: And I think you see, I mean, time and again in, in American political life that there's just there's no substitute for having an engaged activist movement whose champions win elections in a reliable way up and down the ballot that, you know, the Supreme Court matters a great deal. But it's hard to have practical change on the ground when you're constantly losing everywhere. And that's what is happening with the Democratic Party writ large and a microcosm of this in the the abortion rights arena where, I mean, abortion restriction movement is like a primary – origin story for a lot of Republican Party state legislative candidates. And so not only have Republicans dominated state-level elections, but this is an issue that the people who are winning those elections tend to be very personally invested in. So if they lose a court fight or if you know something else. They they come back and they and they try again because they like they care a lot and they're and they're winning. Whereas you have lawyers for for NARAL and, and other women's groups and they're like out there. They're doing their best, but you don't have a lot of Democratic majorities outside of California, and you don't have um, the same. Like activist network that that is as involved. It's not like the same top priority. Even when Democrats uh, do run a state, um, you know, there's there's some moves in in the other direction. Uh, but particularly, you know, if you compare like the presidential battleground, right, where you're like expecting Hillary Clinton will be able to carry Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, you know, states like that. Like those are completely GOP run. States. And if you look at school desegregation, right? I mean, everybody knows about the landmark uh, Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. Uh, It takes forever for school districts to actually desegregate. And then they tend to, in a practical sense, resegregate even when it happens because like education policy is being made in a million different schools and towns and, and districts all around the country. And if you don't, control those institutions, like in a primary way, you don't really get what you want.
2: Right. And you see this in the numbers. So you see since um, a quarter of all abortion restrictions in the United States have been passed since 2011. So this is basically you see like the Republican takeover of state legislatures in like the 2010, you know, midterms and you have the national fight about abortion with Obamacare. And then you just see this massive upswing in abortion restrictions um, where, you know, Republicans both are energized by the fight they've just had in D.C., where a lot of them think, you know, they got a really raw deal in Obamacare. And then they have these majorities where they can pass these laws very easily, and that's really given them the control of this landscape, you know, since the start of this decade. All right, time
0: for some research. So talk about so talk about some some research. This is some some good research uh, out of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, um, a, a good source of research, and <laughs> <laughs> they're looking at a sort of it's a slightly esoteric issue, um, although it's it's quite important. So, the way they describe this as the labor force participation rate of prime age men. Uh, So so this means men who are between the ages of 25 and 54. Um, And the reason that's a statistical category that people like to look at um, is mostly for the purposes of making international comparisons, because we know that retirement policy and higher education policy differ quite a bit from place to place. So if you look at the overall labor force participation rate, of American men compared to European men. It's a lot higher in the United States. So then if you look at why that is, at a first cut, it's because the retirement ages are lower in many European countries and because the funding for college students is a lot more generous. So you know we have a lot more students working part-time. We have a lot more uh, 64-year-olds working, things like that. If you restrict your attention to people who are in that middle bracket, though, where um, retirement and higher education policy don't explain very much, American men are less likely to be in the labor. Labor force than than European men, and we've seen a, a real decline in this. It's been a kind of slow and steady decline since the early fifties, and it really accelerated in the past um, ten to fifteen years, depending on on how you want to look at it. So this paper. I wouldn't say it answers the question. What it does is it debunks the main answers that might come to your head. Uh, So one thing you might think, I I wrote this at at one point, was that, well, women's labor force participation has been going up. So you can see probably there's like more dads who are taking care of children. Uh, That really does not seem to be true. Uh, the, The decline in participation is very concentrated among unmarried men. Um, hmm. You know, so, I mean, you I think technically could somehow make the math work out, but it would be strange, right? Also,
2: they had another chart in that White House paper showing you know, the men who are outside the labor force. They're spending, I think, like one minute more on childcare, So it doesn't suggest they're like— Stay at home dads right. in the way we might think. Exactly.
0: They're, they're not married. They don't appear to be doing much taking care of children. The, the time use charges primarily what these men are doing instead of working is watching television. Uh, they're sleeping a little bit more. They're doing a tiny bit more caregiving. And they're watching. A
2: wa- tiny bit more education, but it's like really yeah. a few extra hours. And they're watching
0: a considerably larger uh, amount of television. So then the other thing that you hear, this has been a big. Uh, Wait till we get VR. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been a big policy narrative around disability insurance. And so they say, well – and there's two ways you could look at it. One would be, well, people are dropping out of the workforce and they're going on disability because it's abusive. The other thing could be people are dropping out of the labor force because they're actually becoming disabled, which would be a a sad story, I think. Uh, So they look at this and there's a small increase in, in the number of people on disability. And that pairs with some other evidence we know about declining uh, health status in in certain categories, but it explains only a very small amount of, of the variation. So then you're left with the question of like, well, what is going on? The paper's official answer is that this reflects a declining demand for the labor of prime age men, which has a somewhat circular quality to it, in in my opinion, and in particular does not do a lot to explain the international element of this. The American economy is obviously different from the French economy, but it's not apples and oranges. The forces of technology and globalization that have plausibly reduced the demand for the labor of uh, less skilled prime age men in the United States also exist in other kinds of countries, and you don't see the same big impact. So uh, I want to
1: zoom in on a piece of this paper because I think there is a radicalism and aggression to this paper that, that can easily get missed. So little bit of context here. The White House Council of Economic Advisors is the less political typically of the White House's major economic institutions. Uh, the National Economics Council is more typically where sort of political economy and, and economic policy decisions and processes are run. So normally what you have at the White House, the the CEA, is a very credentialed, high-level academic economist come in. So Christina Romer was the initial chair of the CEA under Obama and she's a Berkeley economist who was not known really in democratic politics before she took that job. The CEA is currently run by Jason Furman and Jason Furman is one of the leading Democratic Party economists of the last generation. He, his, his reputation was not made so much in the academic arena, but he's been on the NEC. He did a lot of work in the Clinton administration, I think, also on the NEC.
0: Yeah, and he, he's known for his work on political campaigns uh-huh. and developing policy proposals, not for like his um, right. peer-reviewed so research. So the reason I
1: bring this up is that Jason is someone – if this had been done by just like your sort of normal academic economist running the CEA, this might you, – you would look at this and say, OK, um, they got interested in this prime age participation question. Jason is someone with – an uh, Jason Furman is someone with an unusually sensitive understanding of these economic ideologies animating the two parties. And he is using this paper to argue something that is actually a little bit radical within the context of – I think what we from might call like neoliberal politics, but certainly the context of like the Clintonian economic policy consensus, which is that the cut people often make on America's economic policy versus Western European uh, economic policies is that we have created – a much more flexible, much less rigid economy uh, and labor force in particular. It is easier to hire people here. It is easier to fire people here. Our social safety net is a lot weaker in part because we want people to work. It has downsides compared to to what you see in Western Europe. Um, It's often a lot less humane than what you see in Western Europe. It leads to more people getting let go for no obvious reason than in Western Europe. But the the argument we make is that that's all worth it because – more people get jobs. There's more demand for their labor because it's easier to fire them if they don't work out. They have they want to work more because it is harder for them to just stay on unemployment insurance forever or you know take uh, take advantage of other state run insurance um, or, or social supports. And what gets said in this paper to some degree a bit of, not quite explicitly but fairly explicitly is that that bargain is actually not working out. That that story that. Particularly I think democratic economists but not only democratic economists, also republican ones have been telling themselves in recent decades where, hey, look, there might be a lot of things that look more humane in the European system but what we're doing does more to incentivize work is somehow not true and that this should be taken I think a little bit as a – like a really shocking and and unnerving – Data point uh, among among the economic policy class. So I think like what's happening in this paper, which I think is pretty interesting, is that Furman, who knows the contours of these arguments better than anybody, is sort of dropping a little bit of a bomb into this argument and saying that the fundamental way we thought about our economic policy equilibrium is being better than Europe's is actually not true. Like the fundamental prediction we would have made, which is that more prime age working men are in the labor force because we give them a lot less in the way of social support. We make them easier to hire and we make them easier to fire. So it's just easy. Like they want to work and, and companies will have a lower bar to, to bringing them on to work. It's not paying off. And so something really needs to be rethought.
2: So- I think it's definitely an interesting argument. One of the reasons I was a little skeptical of it reading this paper. So one of the things, you know, they do in here is look at, um, you know, measures of labor market support. And basically they rate us on a scale of like how we do on different ways of supporting workers. So we rank like basically non-existent on national paid leave policy. Um, the costs of childcare are very high. And there's a lot of tax on parents going back to work. In my mind, if we're going to say, you know there's a lot of men dropping out of the what labor force and one of the reasons is because they you know don't have these social supports i think you'd expect to see like men doing more like childcare like spending their time on the activities that they cannot do when they're in the workforce that we don't give people enough support to do so that struck me as a bit of a weakness here you know when we see like what people are doing with their free time we had this story that, like, makes sense to me in my head that more men are dropping out to be stay-at-home dads. It would totally make sense that if we had, like, better paid leave policy that you you would kind of reverse that. So that was one reason. I don't think it, like, knocks us down by any means. One reason I was skeptical. There was one other chart in this that I found, you know, quite compelling. It was kind of, like, buried in the back of the report about incarceration rates that we've had. As you've seen the U.S. kind of dropping behind other countries in prime-age male workforce participation, we've also had a big— rise in incarceration. And for many reasons, incarceration makes it more difficult to get back into the workforce. So that, I mean, it's a pretty simple explanation, but it struck me as one that was kind of like, there's a paragraph about it. They kind of moved on, but it struck me as a compelling, you know, it's something that's different from the U.S. and these other countries. Like, yes, we have our less of a social safety network. We also just put a lot more people in prison. And that has effects on getting jobs afterwards. I
1: totally agree with the mass incarceration point. and And not just because of people being incarcerated, but as you say, because of people being on parole, on probation, having to check the box saying they've, they have a criminal record. But let me push a little bit on, on the point about social supports. Because there are, there are a lot of different, obviously, social supports we have. But I think that the ones that are interesting here, it relates to sort of like the Paul Ryan hammock theory, right? He's got that line that... I forget what – I forget the other part of it. Like,
0: Well, there should be a safety net, not a not hammock. Not a hammock. OK. That, that's it then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I I think like the way to think about that is to like compare uh, like a young male worker, like a 32-year-old male worker in, in Mississippi and in somewhere in Germany. And I think that like what Ryan is saying when he talks about that and when a lot of like democratic – even some democratic economists talk about that. Like that worker in Germany, if he doesn't want to work – he can be on unemployment insurance for a very long time. Uh, he gets full health care from the state for sure. Um, he, there are things that are more uh, – and, and Matt, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong. here. things that are more like welfare, more cash transfer programs in places like Germany that, that operate through different kinds of, of, of mechanisms. And so it would be like if he wanted to stay at home watching television, it would be a somewhat more comfortable life. Then his counterpart in Mississippi who – because Medicaid didn't expand there, doesn't get health insurance, can be on unemployment insurance for like a minute. There's no welfare program to speak of that he can use. And so there's been this like long-running argument in American politics that if you give people the ability to sort of eke out even the barest – level of dignified living off of government programs without working, that some group of people just won't want to work, that they're just like not going to be interested in being part of the labor force, then they will just become dependent on the government. And I think what's interesting here is that, again, there there are a lot of other things going on. So it may be that some factor that we are not thinking of is really swamping this effect, but we are not actually seeing that play out, that um, in a lot of these countries where a young male worker can be assured of more cash income, of more health insurance and of just more sort of like societal support, they are choosing to work uh, or, or being able to work somehow in higher numbers than in America where we make not working much more painful. Um, so I agree with what you're saying that, you know, the paid leave stuff, we're not seeing that. We're not seeing this as like a um, – as a way to do other Responsibilities, But I think in terms of like one of the very salient conversations in the social policy world around this stuff, which is like this hammock theory of government dependence, we are really not seeing that
0: borne out here. What you see in European welfare state systems, particularly the, the sort of the better ones in, in northern Europe, is that – They come closer to doing what – if you remember our discussion from last week, what sort of the Clinton administration said they wanted welfare reform to do, which was that services will be there for you when you need them in a serious way that like isn't the case in the United States. But those services will be oriented toward the goal of getting you into a job. Right In the United States, the tendency is the services that do exist are, are geared primarily toward children and, and mothers and they're still relatively stingy. They're, they're hard to get at and the services that do exist don't do that much for you. The sort of big concern in American social policy, official social policy is, as you said, Ezra, is that like, well, the services will become too generous and people will come to be dependent on them. Whereas the the European mentality has become after reforms in the 90s more that like we need to make the services effective. You know, and so it can be like, you could get some really good stuff if you showed up at the government office. So that will like make people show up at the government office. And they're like, yeah, we can give you some good social services. Like, for example, here's a good training program. They need a job in the in the next town over, you know, and, and so they're like actually doing things. Uh, the technical term for this is active labor market policy. Whereas in, in the US, we think in a sort of a very binary terms where it's like, if we do too little for people, there's gonna be a humanitarian crisis. And if we do too, much, they'll get lazy. Single men, we really don't need to worry about the humanitarian crisis for because they're not small children. They're not uh, taking care of small children. So we, just, we don't want to do too much for them and make them lazy. You're on your own. And oftentimes, particularly the intersection with the criminal justice system. So it's like, okay, you're on your own. Um, but also you've got this criminal record. So people are a little disinclined to hire you. And you probably... We're doing committing crimes and found yourself in jail in the first place because maybe you didn't have like a great idea of like what you should do to make something out of yourself. And the American state is not helping you. It's like making you pee in a cup and telling you there's this whole list of jobs you can't do because ex-cons are not involved. And there's nobody there who's like, hey, you know, it seems like you could use like some new shoes. Um, and you come in and you get the new shoes and they're like, you know, where they're really desperate to hire people. I know it sounds weird, but in Ames, Iowa, the unemployment rate is 1.9 percent. Like, do you know anyone in Iowa? Like, is there, you know, is, is there something we can do? We don't do anything. And so on some level, it's not that surprising that with nothing in place to help socially disconnected men to go find jobs, they sort of tend not to. There's an enormous faith in the American policy class in the logic of the market, right? Which is that like presumably these people would rather not be so poor, they are in fact i mean the paper verifies like they're they're quite poor it's not some like secret money fountain that's <laughs> right. them. right
2: this is not like people who did like the 4 week 4 hour work week this is like <laughs> you know th- i think a third of them are living below the poverty lines so right. it's not people who are like have a secret cache of savings. Right. So it's like – so you're
0: not disabled. You don't have a kid who you have to take care of that's keeping you from working. You're really poor. So you should do something. The assumption of American policy is that since you should do something, you will, right? You will go look up on the BLS website, find out that the unemployment rate in Ames, Iowa is super-duper low. You'll get a bus ticket to AIM because, like, you should logically. But people don't. Life is difficult and, and people don't do that stuff.
2: Let's move Vox to Ames, Iowa. No, we won't be able to hire no. anyone. Uh, yeah, like let's the, not move the, Vox. The labor
0: market there would be terrible. <laughs> um, all right. Another good episode of the weeks. Yes. Uh, thanks. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks to our uh, producer, Afim Shapiro. Um, and uh, we'll see you next week.